Howdy, friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. From trails ridden with danger, Cheyenne war drums thunder their savage reply. And a moment of history lives again as the screen trembles under the impact of surging adventure. When the sword and the arrow clash in the charge at Feather River. Up into the unknown reaches of the Rockies go men on a strange mission that demands the last full measure of courage. Men who know that tribal vengeance has put a price on their heads as they ride to the rescue of captive women held deep in Cheyenne country with a price on their lives. Here are thrills soaring from canyons that echo with danger to peaks that thunder with excitement as a mighty panorama of action in a tameless frontier of timeless glory comes to life in vivid Warner color. For a newer and greater theater experience, be sure to see Guy Madison, Frank Lovejoy, Helen Westcott in The Charge at Feather River. That was the trailer to The Charge at Feather River, a 3D Western released by Warner Brothers in 1953. And on this episode of How the West Was Cast, we'll look at the history of the Western film genre at the legendary Warner Brothers studio. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the Hollywood studio founded by Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack Warner. So to honor the occasion, we've invited author, historian, and associate professor Chris Yogurst to join us on the show today. That's because Chris's latest book, The Warner Brothers, was recently published by the University Press of Kentucky a wildly ambitious and highly entertaining biography of the four brothers whose savvy business skills helped revolutionize the movie industry, Chris's acclaimed new book belongs on the shelf of every classic film fan. You'll find a link to purchase a copy of the book in hardcover, audio, and digital download in the show notes of this episode. Now, Westerns have played a vital role in the success of Warner Brothers over the past century. From the 1939 classic Dodge City to Sam Peckinpah's 1969 masterpiece The Wild Bunch, the studio produced and or released dozens of popular westerns, many of which we've discussed on our show already. More recent titles include the Oscar-winning drama Unforgiven and Kevin Costner's upcoming two-part saga Horizon, which is due for release in 2024. Though perhaps not universally recognized for its contribution to the genre, as you'll hear on this episode, westerns have always been an important part of Warner Brothers' history. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this lively conversation between Andrew Patrick Nelson and Chris Yogurst. Chris, 
Chris Yogurst is an historian of Hollywood cinema and an associate professor of communication at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He is author of the books Hollywood Hates Hitler, Jew-baiting Anti-Nazism and the Senate Investigation into Warmongering and Motion Pictures, and From Headlines to Hollywood, The Birth and Boom of Warner Brothers. Great titles. His writing has also appeared regularly in periodicals like the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and the Hollywood Reporter. His most recent book, and the occasion for this conversation, is The Warner Brothers, published last month by the University of Kentucky Press. Less the story of a movie studio than a composite biography of four remarkable immigrants who built a showbiz empire, the Warner Brothers offers readers a story as engrossing as almost any the four brothers ever put to celluloid. Chris Yogurst, welcome to How the West Was Cast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I should also note that Chris and I have been friends for a long time now. We met as graduate students at a popular culture association conference uh, one year. I think it was Boston. Yeah, that sounds- I think it was Boston. That sounds right. So we go back a long way. So this conversation, I suppose, is a long time coming. We have had lots of conversations about Westerns over the years, so I'm, I'm glad to record one for posterity. Why don't we start with a kind of, kind of big picture? Today, Warner Brothers is best known as a media conglomerate with a broad range of intellectual property, uh, including Harry Potter and the superheroes of DC Comics. Uh, generations now have also been raised to believe that the Warner Brothers were actually uh, mischievous cartoon characters locked in the studio water tower for decades. So <laughs> to make sure we're all on the same page, could you tell us you know, briefly who the Warner Brothers were and why it was important for you to tell their story? Right. Well, that's actually a perfect setup for this because when Kentucky Press was writing the copy, like the to put on the back of the book, the first thing they sent me was mentions of Harry Potter and like the current stuff and then animation. And I had to write back, I'm like, that none of that has anything to do with this book, actually. <laughs> yeah. So we gotta start over. Yeah. Because, you know, that you know, Jack is, you know, is gone long before any of those franchises start. And then with animation, that's kind of a hilarious thing because they did not care about their animation. They had, you know, historically significant animators on all of their lots, and they didn't care. You know, in the 40s, I, I, I write in the book that, you know, they were pulling, sometimes their characters are pulling ahead of Disney. But, you know, I looked far and wide for commentary from Jack and Harry and Albert on, uh, and they, nothing. They just, it was not, they didn't no care. No statement from Jack Warner about how proud he was of Bugs Bunny, his number one star. No. <laughs> no. Although he did know Mel Blanc, and at the at, at um, one of his, you know, celebration of life after his death, Mel Blanc was there hosting it. Um, so maybe he, you know, maybe he learned about their animation eventually. But really, the reason for the book is is basically that the Warner Brothers are always the the background to their own story, seemingly right. And there's been books about the Warner Brothers, yet it ultimately becomes a book about the studio and the stars. And the more I learn about the Warner Brothers, the more I kept thinking, like these guys have a fascinating story that needs to be told, and not only the kinds of movies that they were making at their studio and the kind of culture they created where certain kinds of movies got made, but also what they were doing with their own lives. And and somebody like, I mean, this, this book started as an idea. I wanted to do a book about Harry Warner because there's been books about Jack. And the more I learned about Harry, the more I was like, this guy, he's like such an antithesis to every other studio mogul 
that, you know, married to the same person, you know, loyal to his family, uh, all these kinds of things. And I met Patrick McGilligan, the famed biographer at a book talk, and he asked me about my work and I told him about Harry Warner. And he said, yeah, that's great, but you need to do all the Warner Brothers. And he convinced me to do it. And it's a, it's a massive topic. It wasn't easy, but it was something that was a definitely a, a project of passion. I wanted their story out. And I feel like their own story is just as interesting as the studio's best movies. I mean, one thing you you address in the book is how the, the Warners themselves thought of themselves. This wasn't just marketing. Thought of themselves as sort of a team, as a unit that, you know, some some tensions that you get into in the book aside, especially around Jack, it was a family enterprise. So it would seem to me that writing four biographies in one would be tough. But it, it seems like their approach to the studio actually lends itself to this type of composite biography. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, like you said, Jack was always the wild card, but the rest of the family was was very close. That was something that didn't start with the brothers. It started with their parents and, and for all I know, probably the, the parents that came before. But I mean, it, it, with Ben and Pearl moving from what is now Poland to the United States, they instilled in their family this idea that, you know, and so much of their 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 immigrant story is that come from nothing, come here with nothing, and slowly try to build yourself up. And through that whole story, which is full of successes and failures, they kept returning to this idea that if the, if the Warner family stays together, you will prevail, whether you're, you know, success, failure, whatever. And they had many of them. And that's one of the reasons why I think they ended up becoming so good at finding stories that connected with the culture because for years that's what they were trying to do just with business how can we how can we get people excited how can we get on the next trend you know they had everything from butcher shops to bicycle shops and bowling alleys and ice cream stores i mean you name it they did it so they came in to the industry with a, a ton of just business experience that they could apply to this new medium. And that's one of the great things about the book. And this is something you and I were just talking about offline that you really had to fill in a, a serious gap, which is that early period in the brother's life. You know, in, in other books about the studio, there's this sense that, okay, well, these guys were businessmen. They tried a bunch of things, but you do a really good job of showing how that experience actually lent itself to the creation of a a modern motion picture studio that was able to, in, in many ways, stay ahead of the curve throughout its history. Right. Yeah. And that's that's really what they did with with all of these previous ventures is tried to find a way to find an angle in and then to sustain it. And, you know, multiple times they would, you know, they, they even failed multiple times with movies. You know, they had theaters, they got those bought out, they got into distribution because they were told that's where the money is. They get shut down by Thomas Edison, that whole chunk of history with the Edison Trust and the, and the patent company and all of that. So they get shut down multiple times and keep coming back smarter and stronger and together every single time. And, you know, by the 19 teens, the late teens, you know, they're big enough and strong enough. And by then, you know, they're out in LA, they're further from, you know, the kind of Edison's thugs in New York that they can, along with other companies that were doing similar things at the time, actually really creating this industry. And like Neil Gabler said, like an empire of their own, right? Yes. On the other side of the country. And they were right there as a part of it. And, you know, they, they you know, we're, we're the, it's the centennial of the Warners right now, the Warner Brothers, right? It's the, the studio is 100 years old, but it's always 
important or the incorporation is 100 years old. But by 1923, you got to remember that the brothers had been in the film business since 1905. So they had a lot of experience to bring to the table before 1923. I'm here to present the Irving Thalberg Award as a former winner and the gentleman who runs 20th Century Fox, the company that produces oil. We are happy to introduce to you Mr. Buddy Adler, ladies and gentlemen. The Thalberg Award is given only when the Academy Board of Governors decides there is a deserving recipient. It is given to the individual who has been responsible for the most consistent high quality of motion picture production for the current awards year and the four preceding years. It gives me great pleasure to announce that the Board has voted the Thalberg Award to Mr. Jack L. Warner. Irving Thalberg, whose memory this award honors, was a warm, personal friend of mine throughout his entire career. I am most grateful to the Academy Board of Governors for this honor. It is one that I will always remember and cherish. I thank you very much. mentioned a minute ago that the Warners were, you know, interested in telling particular stories that would resonate with their audience. So let's get into some of those stories. So this is a Western podcast. We're, of course, interested in Westerns. Now, in the studio era, all of the studios, major and minor, were at different times associated with particular genres or cycles. So when we you know, think about Warner Brothers, especially in the 30s, you know, examples would include, not limited to, but would include the gangster film, Public Enemy or Little Caesar, uh, musicals like 42nd Street, Footlight Parade, and uh, what some people call the swashbuckler, like Captain Blood or The Adventures of Robin Hood. Now, Warners did make many Westerns in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. But when I hear Warner Brothers, I don't immediately think of Westerns in the way that I might associate Westerns with another studio, like a Monogram or a Republic or you know even a Universal. So... What did the Warner Brothers think about westerns? Did they just were they making them out of necessity at moments when they were popular? Was was there more to it? Should we be thinking about Warners and westerns <laughs> as more closely related than we do? Yes and no. I mean, I know that some of the films we'll get to. The answer will definitely be yes. But as like the thirties, right? I mean, they they did some a lot of B films, right? John Wayne did westerns yes. at Warner Brothers with Leon Schlesinger, who would then become an animator, and then Jack probably forgot who he was. <laughs> but one of the things that Warner Brothers did is that they they knew where their strength was, right? The the musicals, the the depression movies, like I'm a fugitive from a chain gang, the gangster movies. But they were not afraid to try things they knew were trending. So when you had like Universal coming out with all their horror movies, they had Michael Curtiz make a couple horror movies, you know, Wax Museum, Mystery of the Wax Museum. And they're fantastic, but there's not a lot of them. So they're, they're not afraid to dabble in things they know they should probably at least have a, a toe in the genre. So 
they are doing this on and off throughout. And there's certain things that I, I never found anything necessarily about the brothers weighing in on the genre like I did. Like by the 50s, Jack made it clear that he really didn't like sci-fi. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and that kind of stuff. I didn't see anything like that with Westerns. And as as the studio grew, the Westerns got more prominent, right? As we'll get to, I mean, like big movies like The Searchers, right? So they didn't brand themselves as that as the Western studio like other ones might have or could have, but they were always right there. I mean, they were never too far from it. No, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, so if we think about the kind of the important moment in the, the sound Westerns history is 1939, 1940, when we get this you know, sudden explosion of Westerns. We can ex- explain why that happens in a variety of ways. We can point to, you know, precedents like the Plainsman. But nevertheless, by the, the end of the 1930s, we get all of these Westerns. And so all of the studios, including Warner's, jumps on the Western bandwagon. And that creates what seems like in retrospect, some very odd pairings of stars with the genre. Stars not thought of as Western being in Western. So a couple of examples. One would be uh, one of the studio's big stars, Errol Flynn, often paired with Olivia de Havilland. So they're, of course, you know, popular in the swashbuckler. So they get put into Westerns like Dodge City and Virginia City. And then even somebody like James Cagney has his kind of social bandit character <laughs> Sent back into the old west in a in, in a film I really like, uh, the Oklahoma Kid, about the Oklahoma land run of 1893, and and of course in a couple of those, Virginia City and the Oklahoma Kid, we have none other than Humphrey Bogart as the Western heavy. So you know, so these are let's say marginalized films in in the history of the Western, and we we don't often talk about Cagney and Bogart as Western stars, right? But this seems like the moment, and you seem like the man who can. Who can shed some light on these this kind of these kind of weird and wonderful moments in the genre's history? Well, like we were emailing earlier today and yesterday, and like there's really no defense for Bogart and Virginia City, oh. right? And the accent and the mustache, like that's just awkward in every single way. But the Oklahoma Kid, there's so that's a movie that I I actually hadn't seen until recently, and I was expecting it to be like horrid, and it wasn't. No. It was. It really wasn't. I mean, Bogart was his normal Bogart bad guy, and he's no not a whole lot different than he is in his gangster films in the late '30s, right before he breaks out into a big star, and it's fine. And Cagney, I mean, it takes a minute because you're so used to used to him being this like city dweller. It kind of takes a minute to get your head around, but he. He's great in this. Like, I think it's, I think you had mentioned in an email that Cagney had even like dismissed this movie in his own career, but it's, it's, he's great in it. And it's like, he, he loved, I mean, he was, I mean, some people might not know about Cagney. It's, I mean, he loved the outdoors. He had a ranch. He rode horses. He fell in love with horses at an early age at a trip out to Brooklyn when it was still farms. And he's very at home in the horse. And you, when we finally see him, in the movie and he's going to he's going to steal the money off the back of the horse you know and he's he's running he's riding around the rock and up and down he's getting the lasso ready and all this kind of stuff it doesn't seem forced and phony at all no, very natural um so yeah so i was you know early on in that movie i i i i was i was ready for something good i'm like all right this isn't going to suck all right let's go cagney western yeah no i i i find his performance really delightful. I mean, he has some great, you know, which are, are maybe infamous lines, of, uh, a line about feeling the air, which I, I suppose is still <laughs> with us to a certain extent. 
But he, he is a, a thoroughly convincing character. I mean, what also struck me, though, is how his character seems, I don't know, philosophically uh, aligned with some of the gangster films he was making. And, and maybe the Warner's ethos at this time, there's a scene fairly early in the movie where another character discovers his Oklahoma kid has not gone out to participate in the Oklahoma land rush because he's not interested in this, you know, what he describes as a cycle of, you know, land is stolen by one group of people who then steal it from another and so on that he, he doesn't want a part of that. He kind of has this, I don't know, almost anarchist bent to him. So, which seems socially relevant in the context of 1939. Is that, am I reading this right? I think that's perfect because when you look at so many other Warner movies, they they had this similar sense of dealing, you know, because right, you know, 39, we're still pulling out of the depression. And the, here's a studio that made so many movies trying to grapple with the depression from a philosophical angle. Why is this happening? How do we get out of it? How do we make it to tomorrow? Like so many of their movies have this underlying not only just theme, but feel to it. And this movie still, it's still in that. And, you know, this, this is a, a time where the country is still incredibly tense. Not only are we pulling out of the depression, but we got a war looming. And what, as we know, and as your listeners know, you know, Westerns are a great way to, you know, in a, in a creative way, weigh in on the contemporary world through, you know, the frontier. And, and I think that this, yeah, this movie definitely fits any other Warner Brothers movie of the time that they were making that took place in 1939. I mean, the, the movie feels very much of its day and, and has aged pretty well, I think. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. Oklahoma, its forbidden frontiers at last flung open to a nation's land-rushing pioneers. A virgin empire to be claimed by the swiftest and held by the strongest. Overnight, in the raw wilderness, spring up crawling gun-ruled outposts, torn by bitter strife, as Oklahoma becomes the storm center of America's onward march. Into this turbulent battleground rides a mysterious figure destined to carve a glorious place among the conquerors of the West. A reckless adventurer whose single-handed fight against injustice makes him a hunted outlaw. His daring, the driving force behind the creation of an empire. His gun, the only law feared by its plunderers. An avenging terror, wanted, dead or alive, the Oklahoma Kid. So I, yeah, I, I find Cagney you know very much at at home on the range, so to speak. He, he only makes I think three or four more westerns over the course of his career, and you know a good later one is Tribute to a Bad Man. It's a Robert Wise picture from '56 that's actually pretty good. But you know, seeing the Oklahoma Kid, I, I kind of think it's a shame he didn't make more westerns. I would have liked to have seen more of the Oklahoma Kid. Yeah, and, and maybe he would have. I know by the time you get into you know when Warner's is doing some like bigger westerns in the 50s cagney is now with his brother trying to operating his own production outfit through warner brothers so he's picking movies and things like that but i think you know had that not been the case he probably would have been put in some of these bigger movies we, we might have gotten a, a, a western with with cagney and jimmy stewart or something you know oh, could you imagine i i not really but yeah <laughs> i think it would be awesome now you you, know, you you mentioned this briefly, but I, I want to make sure we we give this its due. 
So Bogart as the heavy in a couple of Westerns, Virginia City and the Oklahoma Kid. As you said, fine in the Oklahoma Kid, playing a, a very kind of familiar gangster figure who's extorting people and you know manipulating the, the politics of the town. So he, he does that very well. But in Virginia City, even though he's, he's playing a, a character who's based on an actual historical person who was from Virginia, he's made a Mexican and he's given the kind of stereotypical greasy mustache. And then on top of all of that, he has yeah, a, a terrible Mexican accent that Bogart just can't pull off. And I don't know if it's his worst performance, but it is it is kind of oddly compelling, I, I, I find, when I watch it, because it seems so far, you know, he was asked to do things in that moment as an actor that he just wasn't able to pull it off. Uh, hey, look out, Doc. You hurt a little bit, I don't care. Next time you get a bullet wound, better not try to cauterize it with gunpowder. It worked pretty good for a snake bite. <laughs> it's a good joke, huh? You, you know me, who I am? I hope you are not thinking about collecting these reward. You, see who is there. And be smart, man, get rid of him. Thank you, Doc. That was nice work. You lie almost so good like me, huh? <laughs> But nobody knows I am in Virginia City. Who are they looking for? They're looking for me, Morel. For you? Yeah. <laughs> we are in the same boat, huh? And maybe we can pull together. Maybe. What you mean? It's cringeworthy, and it's been a long time since I've seen that one. It, but it's... It's similar to like the return of Dr. X. Like He didn't really ah, thrive yeah. in sci-fi either. And I think both of these movies are the kind of the only movies where Bogart's performance feels a little forced because he was not comfortable with it. And I think this is just a product of the studio system, right? Saying, hey, you're, we're going to put you in this movie. Yeah. And sometimes that happens. And that's why some of these these great stars, and of course, he wasn't a major star yet. He was almost there. But that's why sometimes, there, you know, if there's, you know, a pre-1960 movie where you feel like, why in the hell is this person in this movie? Sometimes it's just, you know, the studio boss was like, we need, you know, we have you under contract for another movie, so go do that one. And sometimes it, it just happens that way. Yeah, I mean, I've read stories of, you know, stars like Bogart, contract guys, uh, making like two or three or four movies, sometimes simultaneously. Yeah. And, wow. you know, and Kegney writes about this in his autobiography that, you know, he, he enjoyed working with Bogart and found him very professional, but described Bogart in this period, kind of 3940, before he really breaks out. Um, the middle part of the decade is being kind of disillusioned with with the picture business. I don't think that comes through in the performances, but th that context of not having a lot of say over the types of movies that you get to make is an important one for, right. I think, a really important one to remember. And being a supporting actor for like a decade, yeah, you know, like so, that's a big chunk of time to think. Well, is this all? Is this as far as I'm going to get? Right. You know, the you know, the heavy that's going to be shot three quarters away through the movie, yeah. like every single time. <laughs> yeah. And and, you know, I can see how he might have a chip on his shoulder after a little while because he was clearly he'd be great in those roles, but clearly had more to give. And fortunately, we were able to get that. Yeah. Oh, there's there's no question about that. So one of those sort of celebrated later roles is not or maybe is. Depends on who you ask a Western. That's a, a film called Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which you know, occasionally appears on lists of greatest Westerns. It is about three Americans in Mexico in 1925 
who uh, prospect for gold and it's about the you know the, the dynamics within the group and then also the external obstacles they face in the form of bandits that want to harass them from time to time so this you know clearly showed that Bogart could succeed in a kind of frontier setting the film's famously shot on location in in Mexico and you know I, I said this <laughs> to you off camera that you know the question western or not is always uh, red meat for for this audience <laughs> so why do we, how would we understand the the treasure of the Sierra Madre you know what is Warner's doing by that point is it a western should we think about it in relationship to western you you intimated before we started recording that you know maybe you're of two minds of this uh, what what say you definitely two minds of this because on one level you know so many westerns of the so it's so one, I guess, where do I even want to start on? <laughs> um, it's so, you know, there are so many things that come up as Westerns where you think like, really? And like one of them that comes up for me, it's like HUD. And it's like, that just seems to be like a 1950s movie that takes place in the 1950s on a ranch. Like, does that, does a ranch then mean Western always? Right. And, or, or like, you know, a new popular show like Yellowstone, right? It takes place out West, but it's today and they've got, you know, big diesel trucks and stuff. You know, so what threw me watching it again for the longest time, I was like, "Oh yeah, Treasure Seer Moderate, great western." And then, you know, I it really, I guess, I always overlooked that it was 1925, like you said. And it's like in the very beginning, they're in a town and there's cars going by, and I'm like, "This isn't the old west." But so much of the movie takes place on a frontier-like setting, right? Where there are, you know, it's kind of this lawless chunks of space in between settled areas. That has a lot in common with the Wild West, so I, I can certainly I, I feel like I feel like it's less of a Western than I used to think, but I can also understand why anybody would think it's a Western. That's why I feel like I'm, I can kind of go both ways. But in my book, when I mentioned this, one of the peer reviewers actually put a note on my draft when that came up and just wrote "not a Western" like with an exclamation <laughs> point, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> like. Fortunately, that was like the biggest gripe they had, you know, so I could handle it. But, but, so I've been thinking about this for a while, like Western or not. And yeah, I, I feel like I was 100% Western and now I'm like split because it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a like pre 1880 Western, you know, it doesn't have to take place back then for it to be a Western. And I feel like that era of Westerns kind of, yes. Because it feels old and old, and like now it feels old. So it feels like, oh, it's so long ago. It's like, you know, 19, 1948. Ah, might as well be 1848. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would certainly concede, you know, the, the, the setting. I mean, e even in the cities, we get what we might think of as conventional Western moments, like a kind of barroom brawl. It's actually quite right, brutal right. and is lit beautifully. Yeah, it is. But then when you get out into the, the so-called frontier, it really is a lawless wilderness of bandits and, you know, federales in pursuit, but also the, the threat of wild animals and, you know, nature, nature <laughs> seeking its revenge on the you. Gila monster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, the vicious <laughs> Gila monster. Yeah. Um, so I can see that. And I can also see, you know, there's maybe a connection in this idea of Americans in Mexico, which you know, becomes a more popular narrative over the course of the Western's existence. You know, by the time we get to films like The Magnificent Seven and The Professionals and The Wild Bunch. So maybe it is an early example of this idea of, you know, Americans in Mexico, Mexico being kind of a last frontier where you can mm -hmm. become what you envision yourself to be. 
through a lot of luck, actually, there are some like extreme coincidences that happen in this movie in a way that I, I think are actually deliberate because they they're kind of suggest that these characters are always tempting fate and fate is giving them. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, trying to play them a, a beneficial hand and they keep, well, at least Bogart's character keeps rejecting it. Right. Yeah, that's funny about the reviewer, though, because that doesn't surprise me. Um, I mean, people can get pretty passionate about Western or not. All right. So you're still kind of on the fence then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm on the fence. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll turn it over to the readers in the comments and, and see what they have to say. One Warner Brothers Western whose generic status is not in dispute is The Searchers. Uh, this is a film you and I have talked about many times. Now, the Searchers, of course, is regarded as many things uh, by many people, uh, including the greatest Western, one of the greatest films of all time, John Wayne's greatest performance, or John Ford's best movie. But it is not commonly regarded as a Warner Brothers movie, even though, as you write in the book, it's actually up there with Casablanca as one of the most important films the studio ever released. So what would it mean to think of The Searchers, you know, not as a, a Ford or a Wayne film, but as a, as a Warner's film? Is there something that Warner's was doing at this time that made a project like The Searchers attractive to them? Absolutely. And it's really what they had been doing for decades. Um, they, they'd, al they'd always found movies that combated social or political ills they always were really good in this in this kind of movie and whether it was a gangster film you know they worked this kind of stuff into musicals they worked it into adventure films uh, comedies any anything that kind of showed up but the searchers is is really a perfect warner brothers film in addition to all the other things you mentioned because it is a movie that deals with social ills right it deals really courageously with prejudice and you know this is no different than what they were doing in the 30s with their movies taking on Nazis and anti, you know, and authoritarianism and all this kind of stuff. So as we're getting into the civil rights era, this is a this is a perfect Warner Brothers film to to start weighing on, you know, how we, you know, just just you know, prejudice, you know, how we battle with prejudices, right? Because you know, John Wayne's character Ethan Edwards is a perfect example of someone who's pretty racist, but knows he's racist and also knows that that's probably not aging well and he's struggling with it. And these are the kind of characters that Warner Brothers, I mean, even like Casablanca, like Rick Blaine is is struggled, he pushed and pulled in a lot of directions. I mean, it's kind of makes sense why he's in Casablanca because he doesn't really know where he needs to be, it, you know, but he also still has some pretty strict, you know, internal morals or ethics or whatever you want to call them that drive him. Not unlike Ethan Edwards, right, where he can be kind of this bad person, but also this heroic person, and th those are the kind of characters that always thrived in Warner Brothers movies. So I think that in addition to all of the things that ha have justifiably been heaped praise onto this movie, I think we can also see it as another one of Warner Brothers, maybe one of Warner Brothers' best socially conscious movies. Mm. I think that's really helpful. I mean, certainly some Westerns of the 50s, like the so-called pro-Indian Westerns of the early part of the decade, like Broken Arrow and Devil's Doorway, have been you know, discussed in relationship to the social problem film that was popular at the time, films like Gentleman's Agreement and, and so on. Right. But you know, the, the Searchers isn't always brought into those 
discussions, even though most criticism about the searchers nowadays focuses on its its racial allegory. So it's it's I don't know, it's kind of really revolutionary for me to think about this as is actually a Warner's film because this is the type of film not only they were making in the fifties, but they had always made from the beginning. There's a great line in the book, um, and I'm gonna mangle it, but it's how the Warners promoted themselves as is you know, promoting both good citizenship and good picture making, something like that. Oh yeah, combining good picture making with good citizenship. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that also makes me think about some of the Westerns that Ford made after The Searchers, that there's maybe more of a a continuity in this sort of social problem realm. So I'm thinking of uh, films like Sergeant Rutledge or or Cheyenne Autumn. Do you have any thoughts on either of those films? Oh, yeah. I think we can look at both of those in the exact same vein, where these are these are. Yeah, they're John Ford films, they're Westerns, they're all of these things, but they're also movies that that take the the racial component and they put it front and center, right? And as opposed to just one piece of the movie, which, you know, you can go way back and find that as you know, in the genre. Especially when you get to, to Rutledge and Cheyenne Autumn. I mean, you are you are full into the civil rights era. And again, Warner Brothers was always the the studio that was ripping from the headlines, and they were you know, so these are mov- perfect movies that they, they take place in the frontier setting, you know, in a sense, some kind of mythological past and use that canvas as a way to comment on what was going on in the 1960s. And I think both of these examples are movies where it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, these are classic Westerns, but they're also really, really great examples of, of Warner Brothers movies uh, that deal with, with race relations. John Ford has had a distinguished career as a director and producer of motion pictures. The only director ever to have been honored with six Academy Awards, he has given the world a cavalcade of memorable film classics spanning more than 40 years. Now for Warner Brothers, John Ford brings to the screen Marie Sando's powerful historical narrative, Cheyenne Autumn. It is of a time when America still struggled to preserve its hard-won frontiers, when both the land and its people were rugged and heroic. For a small band of Cheyenne, shunted to a barren reservation in Oklahoma Territory, it was a time of desperation. These are the heroes of this epic story, the less than 300 men, women, and children fought a fantastic running battle with an army of more than 10,000 bluecoats in a seemingly hopeless exodus to their Yellowstone homeland nearly 1,500 miles away. Filmed in Technicolor with giant Super Panavision 70 cameras, Cheyenne Autumn stars Richard Widmark, Carol Baker, Carl Malden, Sal Minio, Dolores Del Rio, Ricardo Montalban, Gilbert Rowland, Arthur Kennedy, Patrick Wayne, Elizabeth Allen, John Carradine, Victor Jory, and James Stewart as Wyatt Earp.
Now that point about them being almost mythological, I I think you know we, we often talk about westerns as myths, but I think that's actually really important for these films because you know by the time you get to Sergeant Rutledge, which is a very you know kind of odd movie, it's very stagey. A lot of it's a courtroom drama, and then you know Cheyenne Autumn has familiar western sites, but completely divorced from any kind of geographic or historical reference. So the the setting does almost become more mythical as the stories are potentially becoming more explicitly political. Absolutely. When if you look at, you know, not a Warner Brothers film, but if you look at Ford in this era, you have Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, who is there's none of the Monument Valley is a non doesn't show up yeah. for this, right? It's on a lot of this is on sets on the Paramount lot. And, you know, there's some outdoor scenes at a couple local ranches in Los Angeles, but you know, he's it, it's like during this era, Ford was using the genre and tweaking it to make some points. Like, right, he knew he knew the conventions well enough to knew, know what he could put in or leave out to make the movie stand out. And that's why I think something like Rutledge, like you said, we don't have these big, stunning vistas. It, it, you know, it's this like a stage play, right? But it it doesn't it, it doesn't lose just like Manish at Liberty Valance. I don't think it loses any of its impact because it doesn't have the stunning views of the searchers. Because by this time, I think the 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 socially conscious components of the movie are are what's moving more and more front and center for these films. And I think that's what what's also I think helped them age because they they feel I guess just as sharp as as they probably did when they first came out. I mean, maybe to, to take this back to the Warner Brothers, you know, where where does this kind of social consciousness, this this desire to make sure that the films are, you know, not not only ripped from the headlines in terms of topicality, but also in terms of social relevance, you know, where did that come from with the brothers? And was this something that you know a filmmaker like Ford in the fifties would have said, you know, there's a type of picture that I can go and make at Warner's that maybe I can't make somewhere else. Absolutely. And and I've, I've found just in my research and in new, newer research for future projects, I've found memos where people mention like this would be the kind of thing that Warner Brothers would do. Like they, they're they known for greenlighting a certain kind of movie. And that's why something like you mentioned Gentleman's Agreement before, right? That was Zanuck at Fox. But Zanuck perfected that kind of filmmaking at Warner Brothers. And 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 a lot of times he's he's credited as creating this rip from the headlines mentality. But as I show in my book, this also predates Zanuck. And this goes back to, again, them trying all these different businesses and trying to get an, an edge on the culture. But by the time, you know, it was in the 19-teens, they were already looking into using some of their profits to license popular novels. So they were they were already looking at, you know, how can we get things that people are talking about already and when Sam Warner found a copy of The Ambassadors, My Four Years in Germany, they make this in 1918. So already by 1918, they're, they're, you know, that was their first big successful movie. They are trying to rip from the headlines and, and engage in the culture in a meaningful way. And they really had been doing that. And they, they kind of built that then throughout the entire 1920s. Not only with the with Sam trying to perfect how to bring sound film to market, but also not long after that, you have you know Brian Foy and his production of uh, Lights of New York, you know, which kind of jumpstarts their gangster films before Cagney and Bogart and, and and everybody else is even on the lot yet. 
So all of this stuff is kind of percolating and solidifying in the 20s. And then I feel like that has, that that created an atmosphere at the studio that attracted a certain kind of star, a certain kind of filmmakers, certain kinds of writers. And I feel like by the time you're in the late 1950s, by the time you're in The Searchers or if you're in the 60s uh, with Rutledge and Cheyenne Autumn, I mean, the brothers are, are either dead or retired and Jack is still there, last one standing. But by that point, the the culture of the studio was so strong that it's still, and I, I would argue, and I have argued that it's still kind of, we can see this persisting today. There's certain kinds of movies that seem to work just well at Warner Brothers. So I think, I think these these '60s John Ford westerns at, at Warner Brothers seem to be exactly like you started off this question, where it's like the, the kind of thing that just seems like it would work best at Warner Brothers. Maybe we kind of go to the you know the the lightning or, or trivia round to wind down the interview. As I said before, Warner's made lots of westerns during Hollywood's golden age. Are there any other neglected or overlooked Warner Brothers westerns that you'd uh, recommend to our listeners. Writing this book, there are still some movies that I hadn't seen, and one of them that I I saw and was so impressed with that I emailed you right away was The Hanging Tree, and I, I didn't even you know I don't know it just never was out on my radar. And here's this this late career movie from Gary Cooper that has all of the moral ambiguity and difficult decisions of a character in a Warner Brothers movie. And it's also a Dorothy Johnson story, isn't it? Yes. So, it, so again, there, there you are. There's Warner Brothers, you know, adapting a very well-known and respected author in the genre. But yeah, that's one that, that really pleasantly surprised me when I watched it. In the 1860s, Montana was the brass-knuckle fist of the American frontier. It was a territory and it was a torch, burning half with pride and half with whiskey. A hot flame that licked at the greed and lust of man. They came here from all over the world, except this man, with his terrible temper. This man came from nowhere. I'd say he had his reasons. And those reasons are what make Joe Frail the kind of fellow you don't run into very often. Except maybe in the Montana Territory, where there was no law where there were no badges and the only thing that kept people respectable was was the hanging tree the hanging tree the hanging tree the hanging tree i would second that recommendation so um so it's 1959 delmer daves one of the great filmmakers doesn't get his due, although I'm working on that. And it is, you know, it's it's Gary Cooper's last Western. We often think of his last Western as being Man of the West, the Anthony Mann film from the year before, which is a great picture. But this to me is, is a kind of superior one where Cooper, he seems, well, you can tell me if you got this impression, but, you know, by that point in his life, he was old, he was ailing. And we actually kind of feel that in a way. So we have him anchoring the picture, and then there's you know some great supporting performances, Carl Malden, you know who who also pops up in you know Cheyenne Autumn in a, in a kind of a similar role in some ways, is there as well. Yeah, I think fans of the Western who haven't checked out The Hanging Tree should waste no time. Absolutely. So 
tell us a little bit about your next couple of projects. So it's, if I'm understanding this right, you know, one is is more about kind of Westerns and, and finally being able to explore something that's been a long time interest of yours. This is a project I know more about. And then you're also you know, beginning to work on another project kind of related to Warner Brothers. So what can we look for next from you, Chris? The Western related book is a book in, in your Re- Real West series on the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a movie I've I've long loved and and wanted more people to love it. So this is a perfect opportunity for me to make a you know a hundred page case for why this movie is awesome yeah. <laughs> and historically relevant. So so that is is almost done. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you know it's in the last stages um, at the press. And then uh, I'm just starting work on a book on James Cagney. So this is this is the the Warner's connection. I was just out in LA researching and and stuff like that, and and uh, you know that this is an interesting story just because really the only books on Cagney are ones that were either ghost written for him or written by his ghost writers. So you re- really don't have like a real Cagney bio yet. So the further I got into this, I realized that this might be a good one, and there's. Uh, I can, as a little teaser, I can tell you the FBI files are very interesting. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, well, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us today on How the West Was Cast. We look forward to having you back soon to talk about The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Looking forward to it. Thank you. that wraps up this episode. But before you go, we invite you to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Tell us your favorite Warner Brothers Western, or suggest another topic that you'd like us to cover on a future episode. As always, if you enjoy our show and want to help support it, the best way to do that is by subscribing to it on whatever platform you use. Simply click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing you. Ha, 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 ha.